0: Welcome to the second series of Ethics for Advisors. I'm Matthew Smith and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus and Editor of Professional Planner. In this latest series, we have engaged ethics experts and practitioners to talk through real-life ethical scenarios advisors encounter in their everyday professional lives with a focus on how advisors and practice owners are implementing ethical practices in their businesses. How individuals act or react when faced with an ethical dilemma will come down to a combination of factors including their backgrounds, experiences, education, situational and environmental factors. We've asked advisors, you guys out there, to submit real-life ethical scenarios you may have faced, both client-facing and dilemmas relating to employment structures or situations with the intention of unpacking these in light of FASIA's Code of Ethics. This podcast is proudly brought to you by IWF Advice, who are committed to delivering leading professional development programs. I'm joined today by Dr. June Smith, AFCA's Deputy Chief Ombudsman and Tony Gillette, Director and Authorised Representative of Licensee RetireWell Financial Planning. Good Good morning.
1: Good morning.
0: Great to have you both here for this episode of Ethics for Advisors. We've got so much experience and knowledge in our virtual room today that I'm just busting to, to get involved uh, and into the conversation. So, look, I'd love to invite you, June, um, to, to open up and really give me a little bit of a sense for this idea around pr- pursuit of professionalism. Where is the advice industry, given where you sit as, as Deputy Chief Ombudsman at AFCA, where is the advice industry in its journey to professionalism?
1: Well, thanks, Matt, and thanks for having me here today. I'm so thrilled that we can all share these podcasts and build this community of practice that we need within the profession. And it's great. Yeah. The not professional at all. planner is playing a role in that. And I really appreciate it. So thank you. Look, financial planners play such a positive and critical role, don't they, in delivering much needed services to Australians like me, for example. And what I can achieve and what we can all achieve for our life objectives, whether that's retirement, intergenerational issues, um, or just a long-held dream that we all want to achieve. And so I think when we're talking about our scenarios today and the how far the profession has come, Matt, we need to just really keep in mind mm. the, the pivotal role that advisors play mm. And as we all know, whether it's me as an ethicist and a lawyer as advisors as well, how we're in the people business, mm. human relationships, and those two words are just so important. And so, how this profession and each advisor is going to engage and relate to people when they're dealing with their issues is really mm. uh, the critical foundation for ethics itself.
0: Yeah. And, and does so- the, does the code of ethics kind of help them do that? Is it a bit of a roadmap? to do that or are they kind of equipped internally to to be able to do that themselves?
1: Yeah, man, that's a really interesting question because I think in the context of the journey that financial advice mm. is on at the moment and it's professionalisation, there may well be some people who would see the Vesea Code and other codified values, um, perhaps even some of the law, as an opportunity to catch out ethical and unethical behaviour mm. of people. Um, really that it's an additional set of conditions imposed on people as well and stops the flow of the relationship with the client. Mm. But I just don't see mm. ethics and the way in which ethics interacts with the profession or um, an advice practice that way at all. Mm. I accept that it may well be that at some level uh, the new education standards and professional standards um, that are currently being implemented in advice were designed to drive up standards. They were designed to clarify mm. the conduct expected of people after the Royal Commission. But if that's our sole frame of reference, man, I just think we might be missing a real opportunity and that's really where codes come in. But also understanding the three sets of values that um, will drive mm. behaviour and will a- allow people to exercise good judgement and that is the moral values that people um, use every day uh, as a member of profession, the corporate values and the company culture of the organisation within which they work Mm. and the code or the um, principles, if you like, that every member of a profession agrees they will deliver in their practice because everyone's reputation in a profession is
0: linked to each other. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's, you know, the reason why I kind of raise that pursuit of professionalism point with you, I think it's really interesting what you say there, to what extent um, have advisors acknowledged and accepted that, or, or, that this practice should be intertwined and, you know, part of their conversations or it's something that they have to adhere to um, as something separate perhaps than what they would otherwise do in their business.
1: Yeah, I think the the interesting thing after 23 years mm. of uh, working in this industry and with this profession mm. has been that at the moment, I think we're down the spectrum where we're still talking about um, unethical and ethical people. Yeah. And really, in the day-to-day practice of financial advisors, they're grappling with dilemmas where they need to exercise judgment and understand how values, whether it's their own, their corporation's or their profession's values, can actually help them um, navigate those dilemmas um, in order to secure, you know, resolutions for their clients and great outcomes. And so wouldn't it be fabulous if we could shift the dial a little bit on the conversation that Mm -hmm. um, the financial planning profession is having so that we're engaged at that end and and really building this community of practice um, so that it's pretty clear, um, you know, how people are reasoning through, how they would exercise judgment in these um, circumstances and share that knowledge.
0: Yeah, and and look, that's why we're here today and, look, I must say it's really, really great to have you on board and perhaps as we get further into this conversation maybe some insights from the work you're doing at AFCA but Tony um great to have you on board the listeners might not be able to see but Tony's we're in lockdown and Tony's put on his his best shirt and, and is uh, ready for business so thanks so much Tony for being here and with a great wealth of experience looking forward to getting in the discussion with you today.
2: Matthew we're on a journey uh as financial planners uh at, at this point in time, we're in a very difficult part of that journey. Mm. We're all having to sit for the FASIA exam. I know I've just done mm. mine a mm. number of weeks ago. And I think that the way that the process has been approached uh, has, has been a bit brutal, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly for older members of uh, our emerging profession. And I uh, my big concern there is that um, there won't be enough trained and good and experienced people around to mentor mm. all the young people coming mm. through. Mm. However, uh, I think that the introduction of the FASIA Code of Ethics is probably the best thing that has happened to the industry along this journey or to the profession along this journey of uh, towards professionalism. The FPA did the, some really, really good work back in the 1990s. Established uh, the first code of ethics, but unfortunately, not everybody's a member was a member of that body. Now we have a code which applies to everybody, mm. and it is central to what we do and, and the actions and the way that we must act as financial planners. Mm. I think that being forced to sit for the Fazier exam, has caused everybody, mm. me included, mm. to have to go and become a lot more involved to study it and mm. and, and ultimately to appreciate the fact that it is an, a a very essential step on the on the path forward. Because you um, could
0: you could have um you could have really used this opportunity to to exit the industry I and mean, and probably a lot of other people with your experience um you know perhaps did that what what was the driving force behind you saying well no let's take this next step and and um and join the industry for the next stage
2: look i think that it it comes down to personal motivation yeah i i enjoy what i do i enjoy helping people and i think that's a characteristic of anybody who who is a good financial planner Mm. and um Quite frankly, I don't know what I do with myself if i was not doing what I do. Yeah. Uh, it gives me a purpose in life. More uh, podcasts, and, maybe. Yeah, 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 that's it.
0: No, great. And, um, you know, just before I go back to June, what are some of your learnings from the the exam and what it was like going back and studying and, and how you've um, applied that to become a better advisor and practice owner?
2: Look, um, it has been... I mean, particularly for older people who may not have, have studied for exam. I found the exam to be uh, a bit tricky, dicky. Some of the questions. <laughs> what? what is the most incorrect uh, statement? And, yeah. Uh, which of these is the most correct? Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, we we just it's part of the. Hmm. It, it's part of the journey. If hmm. you if you want to be in it, then you've just got to do it. Yeah. The one thing that it forces you to think about are these these uh, mor- are the moral and ethical issues in what we do. I mean, I uh, always had the view that moral values are hmm. those. But if if by the time you reach your early 20s, you have all. You have learned. You are what you are. You will have instilled in you the moral values and so forth through which you will run your life and bring mm-hmm. those those values into your decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was a bit sceptical, but I, I I've now believed that you can train a person to deliver advice within an e- ethical framework. So. Um, uh, you can teach an old dog new tricks, <laughs> and I think we've got to do that. Um, I, I really believe all the the uh, overbearing compliance obligations that we're forced to go through. I think that this is just part of the journey. I really hope that the Australian Law Reform Commission, the Honourable. Sarah Derrington, mm. that she is going to make some radical things like removing Chapter 7 mm. from the Act, uh, and and ultimately uh, when we get to the point that everybody has a degree or a degree equivalent, mm. Mm. then we will be a recognised profession. Yeah. This is just part of the journey and we're only halfway through that journey. I think we have at least another three to five years to go, unfortunately. Yeah. How, however, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. But, um, uh, and I think that when we get to that point and we are recognized as professionals, a lot of this um, overbearing compliance yeah. stuff will maybe drop away or be reduced. I mean, when we go to an accountant or a lawyer and we ask, we, they just give us their advice, we, we pay for their advice, we go away. They don't have to go and then write you know, half of the Encyclopedia Britannica in writing. And, yeah. You
0: know, Look, I think that's really great comments and really insightful and so great to have your voice on this podcast Tony, because I think perhaps there's, you know, many advisors out there who who relate, and hope I hope there is June. I mean, look, there's so much I want to ask you. I wanted to ask you about that question about can you teach an old jog new tricks in the con- context of you know the ethical frameworks. But first, I, I just wanted to also pick up on Tony's point with you in relation to compliance. I mean, once there are more educated um, people, or that's you know education across the board is standardised, can we expect there to be less compliance?
1: Yeah, thanks, Matt. I mean, I think it's an interesting concept to say, can we expect less compliance (laughs) um, or perhaps shall we reframe that and say, will we all have trust and confidence that uh, the overwhelming majority of financial advisors are doing the right thing in compliance with their obligations, whether they're legal or professional? I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. Mm. And if you look at AFCA's statistics, and a lot of people have been, um, as we've been um, going through our own independent review, you you will know that the number of complaints against financial planners that are coming to AFCA is actually dropping. Um, We still see sometimes some errors of judgment or mistakes, because that is life, and no business can ever reduce risk to zero. And we still sometimes see poor practice, and that is because there are still some people a very small minority who will get the benefit of these education frameworks to understand what the practice of advice action is and how to deliver on a on a profession where our best interests of your client is paramount but most of the time at afca what we really see is Uh, issues to do with the culture of the licensee um, where the advisor actually um, does their work. And that's around business models. That's around one-size-fits-all advice scenarios. And that's really about clusters of complaints from groups of consumers who have had the same experience Mm. as a result of decisions that companies have made and advisors have been implemented. So I think we can also look at when we're talking about the FASIA code and the individual responsibilities and accountabilities on an advisor. Let's also talk about that in the context of the corporation for whom they work and where the licensee's obligations are in relation to delivering on a culture that will deliver on client first.
0: Yeah, definitely, and you know, we we obviously saw through the royal commission that business models played a massive role in, and you know, Hain called it out in in the you know the, the conflicts that you know he he found were embedded within these business models. You know, often owned by institutions. We've now seen a massive exit, you know, by the banks out of wealth, and perhaps a, a reforming of, of business models and a and a, and a reestablishment of business of new business models, purveying and, and delivering advice. Now it's interesting to see the how that culture is beginning to change and and develop in what you're seeing in the numbers and your experience with culture. Are you do you feel like those cultures are, are being set up in the right way?
1: Yeah, I think there's there's shifts everywhere I look, um, Matthew. Whether that's in an intergenerational shift mm. to um, millennials and how they feel about the world, or whether it's a shift in the way. Um, financial advisors do their business, or even indeed at AFCOM, what we know is if you put a good person in a good corporate culture where yeah. decisions are driven by values, you'll more likely than not get good outcomes. Yeah. But if you have a person who um, does not understand how to reason through an ethical dilemma, mm-hmm. and it was driven by the wrong values, mm. then you, I can guarantee you, you get the wrong outcomes. And so, Even people with good moral compasses will often have a moral hazard, as we describe it, Mm. when they're in a company and the the values just don't fit Mm. um, or indeed, you know, can be driven to do the wrong things. And really the factors that will influence that are the culture within that organisation, the ethical leadership within that organisation, not just tone from the top but actually the opportunity and the invitation for everyone in that business to step up to the plate and be accountable for their own conduct but call others out as well. Hmm. And so I really think um, the cultures, um, uh, people also understand these days that value-based businesses actually make money. Hmm. Hmm. This is not a trade-off between profit and being good and doing good. This is actually about how do I leverage a client value proposition anchored to integrity, client first, um, s- service value, those sorts of things, and drive profit that way.
0: Yeah, really great insights. And Tony, I mean, you're a business owner, right? And um, what what are you? Um, how have you made a? a, a I guess a healthy. Uh, culture within your own business and how have you m- had to kind of? Do you think that's you've changed um, the way in which you've you've managed that over the, over over the time?
2: It's a lot easier if you if your business is not large. Yeah, I mean our business has um, three senior planners mm. and, and a total of nine staff, and we all work within the one office. Mm. So it is easy to um, reflect from. The, uh, the top down, it's easy to reflect, we interact with each other on a daily basis, very actively, and um, uh, what the culture within the business always comes from the top. So, you know, uh, and, and you cannot hide who you are uh, as a person. So uh, how do you do it? I think it is just observe behaviour, Mm. Uh, you you also have, as we must have policy, written policies and procedures yep. and so forth, uh, and you know regular discussions encourage staff to uh, ask questions if they have a problem or or, or a concern about something they mm. feel might be wrong or not ethical or whatever. So it's a matter of communication. Uh, and and just living it and doing it Mm -hmm. from a management point of view.
0: We're going to move on to the ethical scenarios now. Firstly, thanks to listeners and readers of Professional Planner for submitting scenarios that we've used for this series. If you'd like to submit your own ethical scenarios to be in the next series, please do so through the Professional Planner website or email me directly. You can also earn CPD points from this episode, all you have to do is follow the link from the Professional Planner homepage or visit professionalplanner.com.au slash education and answer the questions relevant to the episode. This podcast is proudly brought to you by IWF Advice, who are committed to delivering leading professional development programs. The scenarios that we've used throughout this series have really been a mix of client-facing scenarios and business scenarios, and that's no uh, different today. We've got a couple of client-facing one dilemmas and um, and one business one as well. So yeah, if you're both ready, I'd, I'd be happy to, to launch into the first scenario. Okay, so an AFSL has an investment committee that meet um, quarterly. Uh, Made up of three employees um, of the AFSL, the director of the AFSL, and two authorised reps of the AFSL who are not employees of the AFSL, six members in total. The director of the AFSL has a new investment which they have an interest, ownership in, and wish to have that product added to the list. Um, at the investment committee meeting where the director's product is to be tabled uh, and brought forward for inclusion, the director allows um, does not allow any of the authorised reps to attend, which is not normal practice. So for this particular investment committee, it is only attended by the director of the AFSL and the three employees of the AFSL, four members in total. The director requests the product they have an interest in be added to the APL and the director discloses to those in attendance um, that they have an interest in this product and therefore will be excluding themselves from the voting of its of its addition to the APL. The three voting members of the investment committee, all employees of the AFSL are aware, um, that it is not normal practice to hold an investment committee meeting without the authorised rep in attendance but decide to proceed anyway uh, and they approve the new product for inclusion ethical questions did the director do enough by excluding themselves from the vote should the employees have requested attendance of all the authorized reps or raised concerned over the exclusion of the committee members was it right for three voting members of the investment committee to proceed uh, to vote and approve the relevant product I feel like with with so many advice practices now setting up their own investment committees and 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 having a you know an implementation investment implementation that you know, is 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 customized to their business, and and in 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 and in some ways industrialized. I think this is a really pertinent scenario. I might go to you uh, first, June, if if that's okay. What are, what are some considerations here?
1: Yeah, thanks, Matt. And boy, this is a scenario about how we do things around here, and then how we really do things around here. Right. And so um, that conflict between what might be the corporate values of this organization. And how it actually set up even its own governance framework here and then what it actually did in practice yeah. um, by excluding the authorised reps from, from that meeting yeah. sent a pretty clear message to um, others within that organisation. I would have thought that there might be one set of rules for one and one set of rules for another as well and inconsistency is never where we want to do and where we want to be. But whenever I look at any ethical dilemma, and boy, this is one with a lot, Matthew, um, (laughs) always break it down into its individual issues and and then um, look at the different options and scenarios. And I do think um, some of the key issues here that should be called out for resolution are the potential conflicts of interest um, that um, the director might have and the business might have in relation to these products. Um, the way in which it's gone about, the um, voting practices itself, Um, and what might happen down the line if one of our options is it's okay for this product to be on the APL, it's just a question of how we disclose that to our clients um, when it comes to the interest of this particular director. Um, And in the context of this scenario too, Matt, let's have a chat about ethical leadership and what it might look like for an authorised rep in this situation to call out um, that they weren't um, able to go to a particular meeting that um, they really should have been at because Mm. all of those voices are valued and should have been in that room.
0: Yeah, and I'm interested in how this kind of thing would be documented as well. Um, I mean, uh, I presume outcomes of um, investment committee meetings are all documented, um, and I also presume that that, you know, there would be note taken of of the members um, who were in that investment committee meeting. I wonder if there was any any reason or rationale given for why those members were not there. Um.
1: We would have. Um, well, I think it was because they were asked that um, they they not attend, and one one can only mm. um, surmise about the motivations for that. Matt, mm. um, but in any event. If in a good corporate culture is about consistency and good governance practice, um, including how you set up your approved product list through these investment committees, um, should have really meant that you stick to the game plan And unless there were compelling reasons to alter either the who went to this meeting and how they voted, um, the, the game plan should have been there. So not enough um, would be my vote um, for that director to simply exclude them
0: exclude himself from the vote. Yeah, there were
2: many other things going on. Tony, what are your thoughts there? Oh, this thing's got red flags all over it. has yeah. um, mentioned sort of governance and culture. Um, in, in the notes on this, um, it says that the director uh, directs these other attendees, the, the employee attendees, uh, that they will exclude themselves from the voting. Well, they didn't. They voted on it anyway, and they voted it onto the, onto the APL. Uh, so, you know, standard one, uh, ethical behaviour, I think that that's uh, um, definitely an issue here. The big one that stands out is that uh, uh, the conflict of interest, standard three, Uh, even if it's gone on to the APL uh, under a very questionable process uh, that wouldn't stand up to scrutiny, uh, I wonder how the advisors in this business could possibly recommend this product uh, because it is clearly uh, under standard three. You can't just – you're not allowed to manage the conflict of interest. If there is a conflict of interest, you must not act. So I don't see how this thing – uh, if it got on the APL could even be recommended anyway. Um,
0: I presume it's, um, it's a personal interest this individual has in this product, even though you know he's a director of the business but it, it seems to me in the reading that that um, it's a personal interest so other advisors maybe could could recommend it but then it's you know maybe their rela- relationship with that director would would make them conflicted anyway.
2: Well, if I was an advisor in this situation, I couldn't recommend. Yeah, I would yeah. feel very uncomfortable. Yeah, I'd Jean. find some. I'd find some other product to recommend.
1: And I think that um, that's an interesting point, Tony and Matt. Um, I think it does say that the director had an interest and in ownership in this. I think when you're walking through a dilemma and you're looking at the different scenarios that could have played out here, I don't think. Um, again, this is not about good, bad, right, and wrong. It's not that any um, product, financial product uh, or investment in where there's um, shared interests or related interests can't be on an APL. It's more about the way in which um, we go about assessing um, not only that decision but the consequences for down the line. How would you describe this to um, the clients of the business Um how is this going to be disclosed? How do you get informed consent to investment in that product? What impact is it going to have on the advisor's ability to engage in their professional obligations under the VSEA code? And, and Tony's already called out to um, standard two and three, for example. And I think all of those things are on, in play because even if it's on the APL, um, it's also whether it's then suitable for, the, for any client to be invested in that product, and then, um, and then obviously, um, if you can hand on heart say that you've met standard three, and that com- any potential conflict of interest um, from this um, has been addressed, and so the old saying, um, Matt, um, it's all about the perception um, as well, might be something that would need to be considered yeah. in resolving this dilemma. Yeah, look, I know. I feel
0: for the individual uh, who, I mean, this person obviously took the time to to write in and 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 propose or 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 put forward this 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 um, scenario, which they're obviously perhaps you know, maybe maybe not, but it seems like they're involved in. You know, what does an individual do when they see this framework set up, and um, you know, perhaps they are glad that there's a framework because then you know, it allows them to kind of do their job properly. But then seeing that framework circumvented in this way, it must be a real difficult scenario for this individual to say, well, you know, can I even stay at this at this firm now? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it puts in jeopardy their employment and their integrity. Tony, is that kind of, do you think that's... But
2: look, I I agree with your comments, Sam. At the end, there is another issue that um, running through all of this, Uh, and that is that what ASIC and presumably the government want to see is advice being provided, good good quality advice being provided, delivered in the client's best interest, and the the client pays for that advice. Remuneration chain gets polluted where the firm who is giving the advice is deriving uh, income from their own product, mm-hmm. and I think this is it. Gets back. I mean, the vertically integrated model was not banned uh, by Hain, but certainly the fact that uh, it, it, it's 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 greatly frowned upon. And I think that the whole concept uh, that everybody is trying to work towards is where the advisor. I'm sorry, the client pays for the advice. Uh, and the advisor is remunerated just for the advice they provide, not for some other way yeah. uh, of, of, of remuneration, uh, keeping the doors open, received through some form of product. So I just, that, that came out of this as well for me.
0: Yeah. The second scenario here is clients won the lotto a couple of years ago, now multi millionaires, lucky them. Dilemma is, Husband wants um, does not want to attend meetings despite having time to. The wife wants to remain a client and values the relationship. The business owners, that is the business owners of, of our advice practice, this individual's advice practice, see a compliance risk with him not attending the meetings. Does the spouse need to attend the regular review meetings? Should this be insisted upon... Are the best interests of his best interests being representative represented if he does not attend? Can it be said that he understands the advice, benefits, costs, and risks? Is it reasonable to infer that this requirement is satisfied by virtue of proxy standard five? Are his long-term interests being considered via his proxy standard six? Um, I might kick off with you, Tony, to give you the first bite of the cherry on this one.
2: I, um, these, this Here we've got a couple who've, who've been lucky enough to win lotto and, and they're millionaires. We don't know <coughs> the degree of financial um, capability or understanding of these people. Uh, the husband obviously... Uh, uh, doesn't want to get too involved. The wife is obviously wearing the pants in this relationship, as far as making the decisions go. Um, we assume that that uh, assets are jointly owned and so forth. Um, there is definitely a problem here um, uh, in in, in for, for for a planner in that the husband uh, will not be cooperative. Therefore, how can we satisfy our uh, standard five, which is advice must be appropriate and understood, uh, and uh, they must give informed consent. Well, if hmm. the husband doesn't attend the meetings and doesn't want to be involved, how the heck can he give informed consent? Hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure uh, how I would handle this, but... Um, uh, I uh, you, you'd have to insist, I think, that the husband did attend the meetings uh, sufficient to at least gather uh, what his own uh, you know needs and wants and goals were, uh, and have him agree to those, uh, and perhaps come to some understanding between the two of them uh, that that he would accept the uh, advice. Uh, uh, that was given if his wife attended. I, I find it. Uh, I'd, I'd have to think a bit more
0: about this. this yeah. is quite difficult. June, really interested in your thoughts.
1: Yeah. Well, let's let's do what we could always do, and we'll look at the value set we've got. We we can navigate using the CEA code. We can navigate using the information we've got about how the business would like us to handle this matter, and we can navigate this on the basis of our experience and expertise in managing client relationships. So let's have a go at what our different scenarios are here. But step one, I think, is who is the client? Um, And Mm -hmm. if we're going to say that the client is both husband and wife, then it's a fairly critical part of an advisor's role to actually manage the relationship with their clients. So one of our options is get them both in the door and explain to them the service um, that will be provided, what we do do around here and what we don't do around here. Um, And so that's one of our options because managing the expectations of these clients and not getting into bad habits up front might be one of the options that we've got. Option two is, well, we can work around it. We can um, look at things like powers of attorney. We can look at things that, like um, formal documentation from the husband saying um, she can give me, she can give all your, the instructions um, and we can get um, as many, just discla- uh, you know, get him to sign all the relevant documents and those sorts of things as well, plus just attend the meetings we want. But have we, let's look back at our values. um have we really got an engaged client who can give informed consent? So I'd sort of be looking at it from that point of view and are you exposing the business to risk that um, he or one of his children or somebody else might come back later on and say, actually, um, my father, my uncle, my granddad was never involved. He might even say... um, I never told you to do that and I certainly would have expected you to have picked up the phone. So I think another one of our options then is um, don't do it. Mm. I know they're rich (laughs) um, and I know it's tempting, Mm. but uh, when in doubt, don't, is another moral that I live by, Matt. And perhaps if you can't um, give this couple um, advice and they have joint assets and perhaps... Um, and on your terms, because ethical principles are reciprocal, Matt. Um, Trust and respect goes both ways. Mm. And sometimes I think um, advisors aren't that great at pulling the plug. They just want to understand how they can keep the relationship going. Or your other option might be just give her advice as well. So many things to do here, Matt, in terms of the options, standards four, five and six, um, give us um, some indication of what um, the profession would expect of us, but the business already understands we've got compliance at risk here and if we want to continue this relationship, we either have to set the ground rules with him up front or manage the risk and understand that risk might come down the track.
0: Yeah, because it's it's particularly pertinent, you know, given the um, the way in which, you know, AFCA Afca's mediation is invoked as well. You know, it's uh, it's client led, right? So, you, you, at the end of the day, the advisor in the business doesn't really have much control over. You know, down the track, if a scenario emerges that, um, you know, uh, that uh, that they wanted to take action, you know, it's up to the client to then to to lodge that, and 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 then the advisor has to has to then you know perhaps you know prove their prove their innocence in a way, so. I think that's really...
1: Other way around, around, we have to be satisfied that there's been a breach and that that breach has caused a loss. But I do agree with you. Um, Look, risk is a part of everything we all do every day. It's just a question of how much risk you want to take on. Do you understand that risk? How are you going to manage it? Um, And then what are you going to do if the worst-case scenario actually plays out? but we can't live our lives or engage in our profession just focused on all the bad things that could ever happen. Just keep an eye on, have I identified worst-case scenario and how might I mitigate that mm. risk going forward? That's why um, in a resolving an ethical dilemma like this, you'd actually go through your options and think about, okay, well, how does that play out? Mm. And then choose one that you can justify and that you're comfortable with based on, you know, your own business's tolerance to the, hmm. the risks that might happen.
0: Yeah, and thank you for picking me up on the, um, you know, the slight inaccuracy there. And, um,
1: you're
2: and, welcome.
0: And, and Tony, um, further thoughts on this one?
2: You, uh, June, that was an excellent uh, <coughs> summary of the situations. Yes, as I said, I'd be a bit perplexed, but... Uh, uh, just focusing, the issue here is business risk. Um, I mean, we all need money coming in the door to pay the bills, pay the staff and so forth. Mm. However, um, I think uh, when I think about this, uh, I have a very good relationship with our external compliance consultant and I think I would probably put in a call to him mm. and talk through with him these issues and yep. get his advice. Yep. Uh, that's the way that I would act. Um, uh, the, the options, but I mean, the one that stands out to me uh, is, is if this guy just doesn't want to be involved is either just have her as a client if that is possible or maybe uh, uh, write, get get a, a properly drawn letter, uh, a, a, a drawn-up Uh, which which basically the husband says, look, I'm happy to devolve responsibility to my wife and I, you know, whatever. Uh, 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 Won't go after you Mm. later on sort of thing. Mm. Again, that's a business risk uh, if you go down that path. But whatever, there is some very uh, uh, difficult issues here uh, down the track for the business in continuing this relationship without going through the steps and the options and clarifying it up front before continuing with the client relationship.
0: Yeah. Great. Let's push on to number three. It's been a great conversation. So thanks so much um, for all your thinking and your, your time on this one. This final one, I think is, is probably quite common because advisors obviously have su- such close relationships with their clients that perhaps they know too much, you know, and uh, and how do they act when they know so much about a client? So anyway, this one, uh, number three, I have a lady who wishes to retire. Her husband had to give up work due to illness. She always gave us the impression that she was supporting him. He always um previously earned very little as a contract worker. We go through the motions of preparing advice, now knowing that he is no longer working, and when we present it, she asks, does it make a difference to Centrelink if we are separated under one roof? Um, that and that the hubby is now um, has now reached age pension age and went and got himself a single um, age pension since we last saw her. She wants the single age pension too. If they declare that they are a couple, they will um, have more money to live on than two single people around 59 to 65K um, if I include an annuity. As a single pensioner, she would get around 37 to 40K, which is not a lot to run a household on for two people, um, one of whom has medical bills. Um, But if he fesses up to Centrelink, um, he could be up for fraud. Hubby keeps and spends all of his pension for himself and will expect her to run the house on whatever she can get. Uh, he is not interested in receiving less pension, nor will he give her money for the household bills. She has, come, um, she has become so stressed that she's on leave from work. We have broached the need for, nurse, for a nursing home care for him as an opportunity, but he won't even have an ACAT assessment. It sounds to me that the, the, the advisors are trying to figure out a way you know, around to, to kind of help what, what seems to be the, the primary client, but I'll leave the interpretation to the experts. We have um, been unable to provide her with any advice because of not wanting to get involved in a minefield. She can't even think about the pension alone loan scheme as it would need his approval. Um, I guess that's all um, that is left for us to consider. It's up to her to leave him. Given what I know about the client situation, to what extent should I be concerned about the husband's views are represented? Um, meeting compliance for the business is one thing, but I feel um, like this might not encapsulate the best interests and the client's needs. You know, look, there's obviously a, situ- you know, reading between the lines and like I said, up open to, you know, the expert's interpretation, but there's obviously a, a little underlying, you um, you know, abuse situation here potentially, you know, I'll just kind of put that out on the table and, um, you know, which seems to me to to um, involve his kind of personal relationship or power over, over her if, if I'm reading between the lines correctly. And, um, yeah, look, I, I know there's a lot in there, but I principally, June, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this one.
1: Thanks, Matt, and yes, there is a lot in this one and I broke it down into a couple of issues, really. Mm. Again, we have got a situation where I think we do need to focus in on who is the client because it changed the scenarios that you might think through, um, you know, and the consequences of that change subject to whether it's both of them or just her. But I also want to call out something a bit left field and that is, Um, every great professionals bring empathy and care to their relationships sometimes the line between that and getting caught up in the emotional issues that are going on in families is very fraught and in this scenario um, I think one of the things to be considering is who's got what role And for the advisor not to be taking on the responsibilities that are really hers. Um, Her decisions are, do I separate or am I separated or aren't Mm. I? Mm. Um, Having lived through that twice, I can tell you I'm good at that question. Um, But um, I think that's pretty pivotal then as well to some of those other questions um, that are coming Mm. Her decisions are what she does and doesn't tell Centrelink, um, but the advisor clearly never tell a lie, um, and especially not to Centrelink. Um, mm. So we do need to be guided by our values and be pretty unequivocal that not only will we not um, um, lie or mislead, we won't um, do that, uh, allow our clients to do that, okay. or in fact facilitate that happening. Yeah,
0: well, that's decision, clear.
1: Her decisions are also about assessment of his care. Um, Our role, though, is obviously not only about advice, and in this instance it might include powers of attorney, um, and also referral to other services, because if, as you suspect, there is a violent situation here and she's dealing with a person who we know has been ill but might only be about 67, you know, what is his capacity and capability to be making decisions, and what support does she need that the advisor can give to really put her in a position where she can make better decisions and where she's got more more support? So I'm thinking about everything from, you know, aged care services through to community services, um, maybe even legal aid. Um, and a few other um, hmm. referral services that the advisor might have as well. So they're just to start from me, Matt, to keep the conversation going.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that empathy and care that you mentioned there, it, you know, it's, it, it's interesting the way you broached that because it's not her necessarily who... Is getting into that care but she's she's bringing in other experts that perhaps you know but but the empathy and care extends to those referrals um more than perhaps her getting too involved in the situation but I ma- imagine you know for a lot of advisors it'd be very very tough to to not get get overly involved uh in personal situations particularly if they've endured over many many years um tony any thoughts on this one
2: this is a really difficult one again um Because as advisors, we do form uh, personal relationships. We get involved with our clients. We understand their needs. That's our our job. Uh, I feel very sorry for this poor lady. Um, uh, The fact that he has lied, well, told Fibs, He's obviously told Fibs to to Centrelink to be able to get the single age pension by himself, saying that he is single. Uh, how, how that is uh, uh, recorded with Centrelink, I really have no idea when he's actually married. Um, but we can, under standard one, you know, advisors must obey the law. We can't condone that, we can't agree with it. We've got to help her uh, in her current situation where um, she she, she doesn't know what to do. Um, uh, 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 Look, there might be children in this marriage as well. I mean, I would sort of go down that path a bit and see whether or not there are, how close they are to their parents and maybe the children can help to resolve this. This, this dilemma, this relationship dilemma, um, we can't be, at the end of the day, we can help and advise, but we're, we're, uh, uh, we often do end up being relationship counsellors and marriage counsellors as part of our role. But in this one, there's a lot of things that that unfortunately this poor lady has got to do herself. The fact that it's been raised, uh, that uh the concept of nursing home, and he's only just applied for the age pension, so we can assume that he's age 67. That's a bit young to be thinking about nursing home. Sorry, nursing home care. So then you you wonder about what is his capacity? Uh, 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 is he does he have early stage dementia? Uh, the fact that he's gone and done this illegal thing. Um, and is very selfishly saying that he's going live, to live, live on the pension and she's got to pay all the rest of the household bills. You know, uh, I just think that's, that's uh, yeah, it's a very difficult position, but there are a number of things we've got to act in the client's best interest, uh, and and in this case, uh, if they're a married couple, um, it's very difficult not to be acting in his uh, interest as well. Mm. Yeah. Look, um,
0: look, it's a really great conversation. Some curly ones in there, so you know. And I think we, you know, we have the right team to to do it as well. And um, you know, I I really appreciate and thank you for all your thoughts and your time. Thank you, June and, and Tony.
1: You're welcome, Matt. Thanks for having us.
0: Not at all. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ethics and Professionalism podcast. A quick reminder that you can earn CPD points by visiting our website. If you'd like to submit a scenario, please send me an email for a chance to have it featured on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, please keep an eye on our channels to stay updated on future episodes.